Okay, hello and welcome to episode seven of the Salesforce Posse podcast, recorded on the 18th of October, uh, 2019. In this episode, we're going to look at the Salesforce deployment process, the kind of current state of play, and what an ideal continuous delivery pipeline should look like. My name is Francis Pinder, and this is... Anoop Jadhav. Hello. Hey, Francis. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm actually quite excited about this episode. It's uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about. You are a CI and CD geek. I, yes, I think uh, you can say that uh, <laughs> because it's one of those things I've been quite passionate about over the years. And as you know, it's uh, you know the whole deployment process, CI, CD process has evolved, uh, and it's been interesting to see how that whole thing started with just you know deploying from your ID to to different stages and now we are DX. So yeah, I'm excited to talk all about it. Okay, cool. So why don't we start off by explaining what CI and CD really mean? Yeah, so continuous, um, well, continuous delivery is, is a extension of agile methodology in a way where the idea is that you do the development and build in a way so that it's continuously deliverable. So, you, um, and you use a number of tool sets for this, uh, tools for this. So you use version control, um, you use something like Jenkins to manage the deployment, uh, automated testing. And the idea there is that once you've written your code or implemented something, you commit to your version control uh, whatever you're using, GitHub, Bitbucket, or something else, uh, then it the tooling kicks in, takes your code, runs automated tests, runs other tests if required, and deploys it to a target environment. And the idea is that this is all automated, so you just focus on building stuff, and the tooling takes care of deploying your uh, code or the package to different environments. That's the general overview. Yeah. And I think it's like you rather than building up lots of work in progress, your ability to kind of deploy smaller iterations a lot more efficiently. Correct. Yeah. So I think that's smaller iterations is the key word here where... You know, if you if you compare this with the waterfall model or even bigger agile projects where you build up a massive code code base or implementation package and then uh, wait for it to be deployed either manually or involve a number of people. But continuous delivery is about uh, setting up a tool chain, chain or pipeline wherein you, well, ideally just commit your code to the code base. And once it's approved, uh, when it goes through a review process and approved and merged with the with the master branch or whatever branch you're working with, the tooling kicks in and takes that code and deploys it to the target environments for you. And again, the key thing here is that your branch, that the master branch should always be deployable. So you should catch any errors before that so that uh, anybody can uh, deploy to that master branch. The idea being that it improves collaboration and it also improves the bandwidth of how people can asynchronously deliver features without being dependent on each other. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's an, and it's a continuous ev uh, evolution of that process. Absolutely. So you're continually improving it, streamlining it, and adding new kind of like uh, SecOps processes to check for security and other things as you're working kind of so that as early in 
uh, as far forward as possible at the front of that development. Developers can get early warning of things they're doing maybe not correctly or um, yeah, incorrectly. So it gets trapped earlier rather than waiting to testing or later on down the process. Correct. Yeah. Um, so how does that work with Salesforce? Uh, do you want to talk about what you've seen in the, you know, the, I've seen quite a few implementations. So let's start by what, uh, what kind of CI, CD setup you've seen in the wild? Well, I think it's, it's, it, it all comes down to the maturity of the company. And, to, you know, even ignoring the CI, CD, you can get, uh, some people kind of do it in a way of just using change sets. It's a very small team. They know what's being deployed. They can kind of cascade those change sets through their environments and get a kind of a similar kind of process going. Um but it's on a very, very small scale, so you've got less risk. Uh, you don't have as much automation in that process, um, but you know it, it does the job to a point. <laughs> um, but then it's yeah, building out. So some companies use uh, tooling to do the job. So I suppose that's the kind of the next maturity for me. Uh, so apps like Flowsome, Gearset, Capado, Auto Rabbit, things like that, and then using you know those kind of code review tools. Um, and, uh, then it's, you know, actually building out that pro that pipeline yourself, putting in those infosec rules to really streamline it. So using, using kind of like Jenkins, as you mentioned before, and, uh, linking that to your version control and branching. Yeah. Um, um and I've yeah. seen something similar. So the, I mean, the, it can be very simple, uh, or it could be quite complex. The challenges that we have. Let's let's start with you know some of the complexity. Let's compare and contrast. If you were doing this as a Java, C plus plus, or C sharp project, you would have a uh, you know you would write your code locally on your machine, and maybe even test it locally, uh, and then when it's ready, you would commit that code to GitHub or Bitbucket, and then a uh, some sort of tooling. You know, there are a number of different tools including Jenkins, would just kick off a process, take that code, deploy it to target environment, run tests, and all of that stuff. In Salesforce, it's kind of, we have different options. So in Salesforce world, and also the 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 difference there is in Salesforce, we have metadata that's on our physical computer locally, and then there's metadata that we have in the cloud. And we have to kind of make sure that the two are in sync, which complicates things a little bit and confuses things. I would say three yeah, are exactly. in sync, potentially, because you've got production yeah. as well. And I think that's the unique thing with Salesforce is that production metadata is changing yeah. every day. Uh, and so being aware of that, it's not, hey, I here's my java code it's been compiled and deployed to our environment and it will never exactly change. whereas the your org even if it's a sandbox could be changing admins or other developers could be adding fields adding rules or uh, validation rules or other other metadata to it while the metadata on your machine might be different to what's in the sandbox. So the idea first is to kind of keep that in sync, which is easy. You know, you can just kind of retrieve everything and do that. But then uh, your uh, repository has to be pristine. You can't uh, just merge or deploy or push 
everything that you have locally onto the repository because repository needs to be the source of truth. And this was quite difficult before DX arrived. It was quite difficult to kind of make sure that your repository only contains the changes that you want to deploy. And it's one of the difficult things to achieve as part of this setup is your local metadata that you're working on, which is synced with your sandbox. And how do you then just take the subset of what you're building and put that into your uh, repository? So I've seen a number of different strategies there where people kind of have a separate folder for their Git repository and a separate folder for their metadata, which is linked to their sandbox. And that uh, metadata folder can be sort of you know dirty, as in they'll just constantly pull latest metadata from the org, but their Git folder is clean. Um, and then what they do is when they want to uh, create a pull request or uh, want to merge their changes into Git, they would only take the subset of that metadata and put that, move that across to the Git folder, and then create a PR around that and push that pull request to GitHub or Bitbucket. And that's the cleanest approach I've seen. And some people try to just use one folder for both purposes, but then it kind of gets messy, a uh, bit messy because you have to. Um, the, yeah. the other yeah. big challenge is all of these uh, metadata files that we have, especially for around object definition and profiles, these are XML files. And, you know, they're the format and the ordering of these XML files can change. So it gets quite tricky, especially if you if you refresh from an org which was on a different release, for example, and the new release comes along and you pull everything down, what you've committed to Git possibly has a different format of that XML file than what now you have in your metadata folder, local metadata folder. And trying to compare and merge that into your Git files is one of the most tedious tasks <laughs> i have to say <laughs> yeah i think i've even i've even had it change even when yeah. it's not a different version so the ordering of xml has changed so you've only kind of added in a button but actually the whole order <laughs> of that xml is tweaked so it looks like lots of things have changed but actually exactly and it's you just can't been a sensibly new button compare the two uh, that's the challenge you know you don't it's like oh it looks no. completely different how do i now merge these two changes so that's why it's useful to have at least in my experience the scalable solution i found is to as a developer to keep these two things separate and uh you know just move your change from that xml and maybe append it to the end of the or, or to the appropriate location at the end uh, of the git folder metadata uh, i know it's a manual step that you have to do but this is old school style all of this i suppose with dx it changes because of yeah. DX, the source of truth is git so i think yeah I, a tool i used a lot is um beyond compare oh, i don't yes. know if you used it yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, for constantly doing metadata it, comparisons it, and <laughs> it's an underrated and essential tool for yeah. all salesforce developers i have to say yeah uh, it's, uh, it's i've used that tool all the time uh, i think some of these apps that you mentioned uh, you know auto rabbit Copado, guess it they try and um alleviate the pain of comparing that metadata but everybody does it differently and everybody has different yeah uh sort of restrictions and constraints on how do you want to do these things which kind of you know i these tools are you know generally great and if you don't have anything currently in terms of ci cd uh 
they are probably a great starting point. You know, they're, they're good to implement if you don't have an existing, but if you have an existing process or if you want to follow, uh, have granular control over your process like I do in all my projects, then you might feel a bit constrained by following a certain way of deploying uh, when you use one of these tools. Um, it's one of the downsides. Obviously, there are many benefits yeah. of using these tools as well, especially if you're just also- admin. I think also some of the tools, they do have, you know, extra functionality. So kind of like Jira type agile functionality for managing sprints and things like that. So, you know, there's other features in it. But then if you are using your own local Jira, you know, repository for managing sprints and things, then, you know, it becomes less value add. And yeah, all these tools try to do what Jira is doing, which I think is, okay, I mean, you have Jira as a dedicated tool. I'm not saying Jira is the best, by the way. Jira has its own problems, but you you need a dedicated uh, ticket management or project management tool, uh, which is outside of the deployment pipeline, if you will. It's part of that, but it kind of, you have to manage that separately because otherwise all of the project team members will need a Salesforce license to manage it if it's all in Salesforce as part of these tools, which is probably not scalable. Um, and some people frown upon that because they'll have to buy additional licenses because they have to do project management in Salesforce. Um, so yeah. one of the downside. Um, the, one of the challenges, and this is something uh, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on. So let's say it's the ideal. Uh, I'll talk about the ideal setup that I have. So you have developers using their either using their own sandbox or using a one common developer sandbox i think that's less of a concern um either way they you know they make a change they when their change is ready they create a pull request from uh, let's for arguments sake say jira and then they submit that pull request to um bitbucket on a branch uh one or two developers review that ticket it gets merged into bitbucket Jenkins or Tra- uh, Travis CI or Circle CI kind of takes up, you know, uh, detects that change and deploys it to QA environment or UAT. Um, and then after that, they follow the same process when they have to deploy to future environments. So um, you can also have automated coding, um, rev- code review tools. So there are a number of code review tools like Clayton, CodeScan, there's an Apex PMD. So let's say as part of the review process, you also kind of submit it through these code review tools that not just reviews code, but also metadata. So it's good. You know, it's everything's working. Yeah. You have a developer. Uh, now, uh, you also have admins in your team and they might not be familiar with some of these uh, tools to be part of this process. Now, ideally, if it was just a team of developers, everybody follows this process and everything goes through this pipeline. It's perfect. It's beautiful. You can track all of the changes. Everything's auditable. Uh, whatever can be changed through the metadata API goes through this pipeline. Other things are, go, uh, are manually done and it's all tracked in spreadsheet. But when admins come into play, and they're part of your team. What are you talk? What are you talking about? Admins coming into play? Do they mess everything up? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you said that. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> no, but for the uh, no, serious note. So, if if admins come into play, what what kind of uh, how do you integrate them uh, as part of this process? Especially if they they've never used 
Git or version control, you know. I, yeah, you're moving an admin into the kind of developer yeah, world. And you don't want to then yeah. have another process for them. Like you don't want to use, start using chain sets because then uh, you lose the the important visibility, the trackability, yeah. and auditability of everything. And then you have yeah. two parallel pipelines, and you know it's. Uh, I mean, it's manageable, but still, it's a lot of overhead. Uh, you still want everything to go through one pipeline. So, what? Have you come across this kind of scenario? What do you kind of think about this? Yeah, so this is where I think it's coming up with an easy way for admins to make changes and commit those changes with the most limited amount of knowledge, really, because we want to make it. But then the whole process should be designed in that way anyway, so that developers or admins can submit changes quickly, which is the whole point of a good CI/CD solution. My view, or you know, it, it's possibly um, again an ideal view of doing this is you um, integrate admins by training them up to use these tools, and it's in the short term. I know there's a lot of uh, onboarding overhead. There is a lot of possibly resistance. You know, they they might be used to just uh, using chain sets or something. But I think if you kind of set up a um, an organization policy or development, software development policy for the Salesforce team where you say, this is one pipeline and everybody needs to uh, follow the same process. Uh, and, you know, we only use chain sets for specific situations, but otherwise everything goes through this or we don't use chain sets yeah. at all. Um, I think that that kind of uh, onboarding and training uh Pays dividend in the long term because then everybody follows the same process. Yeah. They don't have to know code, but they need to understand metadata, uh, which means that if they make profile changes, permission set changes, they just need to know how to take that change and commit it to GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever you're using. And once they kind of and you know you you pair the, that admin up with the developer for the deployment part initially and over time they get the hang of it and they pick up uh, the process and then if everybody again follows that same pipeline or deploys to the same pipeline and it's uh, it's the best um best scenario and it's not it's not that difficult to pick up uh, and also you know with the dx and the dx plugins you can get which i'm sure we'll talk a bit about um you can kind of automate the checking in to git and stuff like that so they don't have to be constantly writing lots of command line prompts correct stuff. yeah i mean i mean so, so far we i mean at least i've been talking about the ant migration tool as part of this but let's i mean quickly moving on to dx things are becoming easier uh, and things are becoming more modular where they, in fact, in a way, Salesforce yeah. are actually uh, implicitly saying uh, with DX that everybody should be learning about version control, whether you're a developer or an admin or just a business analyst who's making change here and there. And it's u it's a useful skill to have, uh, you know, uh, knowing how to um, use version control for deploying changes. And with DX, Salesforce is sending a strong message that this is how, what the future of Salesforce development looks like. And DX makes things a lot easier because it flips the whole model. Uh, previously, your org uh, was the source of truth. With DX, the um, the repository becomes the source of truth. So it, it becomes slightly easier yeah. 
to work around that. So you create complex workflows around the repository on how you, if you're working on multiple things, you have multiple branches, but then everybody kind of has to deploy things through DX, uh, but it's easier because it's more modular um, and you can deploy as related components as a package and it can be versioned it's it's just um it's very ideal and it's, it, it's aligned with how other development platforms like uh, java or uh, .NET are deploying uh, allow developers to deploy their code and i think because you, you, you so you talk about you know modularization um and also making it easier for deployment but also that the repository is the source of truth but as a user in production, I could be making metadata changes. So I could be creating reports or dashboards, which is changing, you know, which is the obvious one for changing metadata. Or it might be adding pick list values because I'm marketing and it's affecting my campaign members, um, if you've got that enabled. Um, so how, how do you go about deciding which metadata and packaging and modularizing these groups of metadata types together. I think what, what you're asking here is what 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 changes are allowed directly in production, either by a user and admin, and how do you then yeah, track that? Exactly. And what do you track or yeah. not? So as I the think case may be. from yeah. my point of view, any metadata that affects the uh, structure of the setup uh, needs to kind of be pushed from lower environments through the process, through the pipeline. Uh, that's the general rule yeah. of thumb. Um, reports, dashboards, these are things that, you know, obviously they, they sh uh, the users should have control and admin should have the ability to make these changes. But uh, these changes and maybe others, well, the way I've done this in the past is I've kind of set up an automated process to update the repository for all these specific metadata so that they're just kind of committed because you don't need to track them in a certain way. They're just kind of additional information that's added to the metadata, uh, to the repository. Yeah. So you just kind of, you set up a automated process to download the production metadata, that the subset of metadata that the users create in production and update the repository with that. Uh, but then it needs to be strictly sort of non-setup data because you, you what you don't want to do is give users the ability to add fields for example that is a big no yeah. <laughs> i think that that has to go through a process even if you have super users who want to create fields uh, again they should be working with the admins or the developers and do making those changes at a lower level uh, low, in the lower environments and following the process that's been set up for them to deploying the changes so that way, everything is tracked, everything. And it's like, you know, setting this up, it does take a lot of effort, by the way. It, I, anybody who doesn't have this in place today should not underestimate that, you know, it will be easy to set up. It takes skill um, uh, from the dev and admin team to set up the whole uh, GitHub, Bitbucket or whatever you're using. And on top of that, Jenkins or Travel CI or, uh, sorry, Travis CI. Um, but once it's set up, it might take a month or two months or even three months to get it going. Uh, it's beautiful because everybody then follows that same process. You know that uh, you have the confidence that these changes have been tested either automatically or uh, through the environments and they are being tracked. Uh, it's easy to kind of say if something breaks in production, it was because of this specific release and these are the components. And the and in, um, the other benefit of doing this is over time, you can also start attaching release notes 
to your deployment. So uh, you can basically take a summary of all of the pull requests that you have and combine that and send a note out to your users saying, this is what we're deploying um, on Friday, not not on Friday, never do a deployment on Friday. <laughs> Maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday, something like that. So, uh, Oh, why, why don't you do a deployment on Friday? The reason for not doing a deployment on Friday is because... <clears throat> Well, I'm not going to go into the reason. It's just there are a lot of horror stories out there. <laughs> Never and you lose your weekends. Yep, exactly. If you if you really like to enjoy your weekend, don't deploy on Friday. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's that's kind of my ideal setup. Now, going back to the um, to your question, yeah. So that any non setup related changes, if that's allowed, the only additional setup that you have to do is make sure that the, those changes if required, should be added back to the repository so that your uh, repository is, again, reflecting the source of truth. And I think also it's like you can, uh, when you get to the point where you've got this great kind of pipeline going and it's easy to push changes into production, it makes it easier to start experimenting and pushing things in to try things out. And if it works, then exposing that to you know the rest of the organization. Or if it doesn't work, quickly pull it back out again, uh, which is kind of one of the kind of tenets of uh, a good DevOps process. So, um, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Uh, speak, speaking of DevOps, uh, have you, what's, what's your definition of DevOps? So my definition of DevOps, well, you know, the classic one is that it's uh, developers and operations working together because, you know, operations don't want any changes because if you change anything, something might break and they've got to support it and it's a nightmare, whereas developers want to push changes in continuously. They want to, you know, show the benefits of what they're doing quickly so the business can see that and so the business are kind of driving that as well so there's a bit of a conflict between the two and so the whole devops uh, kind of i say uh, what is it methodology i mean it's not really a methodology but you know the um the devops thing i see it as the two working in harmony where operations rather than a, a they're kind of manually doing the deployments, not liking doing the deployments, you know, scared that anything's going to break. They know that actually they're managing that whole process to make sure that actually it's more efficient to do lots of little things, deploying lots of things because it's a lower risk uh, potentially rather than a massive release at the end of a month or, over, you know, over several, over several months. So, you know, it's... it's yeah, I'd, I'd, and, and, yeah, and also you're getting, you know, business benefit quicker, but it is that harmony between the two um, and streamlining it so you can get quicker. Because I look at it in three phases, the streamlining of the process so you can deliver kind of ever more quicker and quicker and quicker so that your aim is kind of deploying more multiple times a day and i think like is it netflix they say they do like a thousand deployments a day or something yeah possibly well uh, i think all of the yeah, big, kind of big companies do the fang companies do facebook apple yeah. amazon are just doing thousands and thousands of deployments and but then you know once you streamline that then it's the um feedback on everything you're doing so understanding how things are working not working you know if you're 
a part of the process, you're about to deploy something, but Jenkins isn't up or it's kind of running out of disk space or something that is all this kind of reporting and feedback is coming back on how your users are using things or not using things, uh, how your whole tooling is working or not working. Um, and also, you know, feedback on, ah, you've deployed and changed the IP security settings in a profile. Well, that's not allowed, you know, and blocking that uh, uh, at, you know, your development and testing, automated testing stages. Yeah. Uh, and then then the moving on to that experimentation, being able to kind of try things, push things in, and knowing that if it's passed all the checks of that pipeline, that it's going to go in, but then you can release it to a limited set of users as a tryout to see if it works. If it does work but needs tweaks, you can tweak it and evolve it quickly. If it doesn't work, you can just pull it out. Yeah, it's, it's developers and ops team working together, right? I mean, in the past, I've seen, yeah. I don't know if you remember, where developers were like focused on developing, developing, and then throwing it over the wall to production and ops were re- ops that, responsible yeah. for maintaining it. So they they were kind of quite rightly suspicious of anything coming through. So they put in a lot of uh, uh, ch- checks in place before it goes to production. So, you know, there used to be change acceptance board meetings, change request board meetings. I don't know if you saw it, sat in on those. They, they really... They, yeah. Oh yes, I've, they, I've I've done reviews yeah. at companies, and I think there was one company that I thought was the most hilarious. And yeah, they had all these processes, and then but when it came to the final sign off of the project, of, of the release, they had to get fourteen yep. people to separately sign yep. to say the release was yeah, uh, okay and I think to be released, they, and that took weeks just to get everybody to reply it, and say yes, all, I'm happy. It was all done you know? to because you know developers probably wouldn't test their stuff properly, and then just throw it exactly, over, and it's yeah. like now it's ops problem. So they. they created these this process to make sure that there was quality check and you know people were uh, deploying the right thing and all of that stuff but now i think the devops what devops is trying to say is that why don't ops work with developers throughout the life cycle you know not just at the end yeah. when we are deploying ops are part of the dev team and they they work together to uh, to to deploy this and this is a big cultural change within a company and it has to uh, to make devops happen you really have to throw away the old uh, the old rule book around how development is done yeah. and operations is done and how they kind of try to protect their own territories like no access to production and stuff like that it needs to be a joint <laughs> collaborative thing where you have give sensible yeah. access to everybody and sensible um i guess a, a, a process that both devs and ops follow so that the the final product or the deliverable that goes to production is something that everybody's happy with and signed off on uh, during the design phase. But also, yeah, I think. But also, I think it's a bit of a it is a cultural change. But also, you do get this kind of. I do see it in some companies where you're moving to this new world, and there's resistance to change because it's the fear of like the release managers no don't have to do all that checking and manual checking and reviewing, and actually they could lose their jobs over it and all this thing, and all this kind of uh, stuff. But actually, it's not. It's, it's kind of like a transition into a new role of rather than checking every single release and verifying it and doing manual checks and making sure everybody's doing the paperwork and blah 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 it's actually now looking at that whole development pipeline and seeing where it could, more automations and checks and things can be added in to improve it and speed it up to make uh, you know and so it is a kind of a change in role and it's not like you know you're losing a your job it's just understanding that it's your role is shifting from this 
you know, mundane, almost, you know, boring checking of every single release to actually looking at the whole pipeline as itself, the whole value chain of that DevOps piece. It's also shifting accountability. So I think Amazon started this process, if I'm I'm, uh, not wrong. So Amazon basically said, rather than having ops team with with their pages beeping in the middle of the night, why don't we also... uh, give this accountability to developers. So developers will be more conscious of what they're deploying to production because they have to also maintain this in production. So if there is a production issue, the devs also get involved. And that's kind of how this process started and then evolved. And then they were like, then developers were like, oh, okay, if I get a, um, if my pager beeps at 2 a.m. on a Sunday night, that's not a good thing. So I better make sure that I've actually written all my test cases. I better make sure that this works. Yep. Uh, otherwise, I'll <laughs> I'll get that. Uh, my pager will beep on Sunday morning. But also, I think like Spotify, they actually have a rule that if the developer isn't on the call when the development is happening or the deployment is happening, that their changes get yeah. pulled from the release. So you have to be there when it's being deployed so that you can respond to any issues there and then. It's it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's unfortunate that in the Salesforce world, uh, it's DevOps is still not there. You know, a lot of companies, I think specifically in Salesforce world, unless you're developing the product on the Salesforce platform, most big enterprise companies see, have this whole bimodal IT function, you know, that Gartner invented, which is probably not a, uh, which which has its own flaws where they have so much focus on DevOps and agility on systems of engagement, which is like the product that they're building, whereas they don't put that much effort into systems of record, which is Salesforce and related systems. So it doesn't get the same kind of love and care in terms of the processes and, uh, you know, team and resources around that. So what I've noticed is that uh, for systems of engagement, if it's a product where, you know, uh, it's customer facing, so it needs a proper team around it. So they'll get everything. They'll have a release manager. They'll have a quality assurance engineer, uh, uh, everything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) UI. Whereas if it's systems of record, Salesforce, uh, you know, you'll throw in an admin. uh, It's just a database, isn't it? Maybe get a contractor uh, contractor in to do the development. No architect, uh, you know, there's there's no architect who kind of looks at the overall solution. Uh, Sometimes they don't have a quality assurance engineer either. You know, no one doing QA, the business and the developers or admins doing the QA themselves. So this kind of... um, different modes of working for systems of engagement and systems of record does harm because ultimately the systems of engagement uh, relies on the data that the systems of record creates and maintains. So if you have this two different flows and attitudes towards, you know, we'll do follow the best processes and do the best things for the front end product oriented things. But Salesforce or other systems, ERP systems we have, meh, you know, we'll just kind of get either outsource it or just get in uh, a few, few people. So they don't get the kind of support to, or the, um, the direction, top down direction from management uh, to. But is that because is that a symptom of a basically a cloud solution anyway? Because you've got this kind of on one side, you're buying this solution which is completely abstracted away from you. You don't need to manage patching the servers and virus scanning and all this kind of stuff. So you don't I have think, to have that rigor really. And then you that cascades down into changing and development possibly, on it as but well. I think it's it's more of a if 
it's it's this whole thing of treating uh, backend systems of records as a secondary citizen than a than a system of engagement front end thing, right? So it's more of that kind of attitude that it they the team doesn't get support. Uh, or the budget to manage the platform. And over time, it kind of deteriorates and it becomes more complex and more fragile because the irony is that systems of records is only going to grow and the business are going to use that data and the system more and more. And they kind of uh, request more features there than the customers using the product in the systems of engagement in the front end. Uh, so there's this kind of imbalance of resources and budget and attention and love and care between the two systems. I, I'm not saying it's the case, it's, uh, it's, it happens everywhere, uh, but I, this is the case in most of the big enterprise companies that I've seen over the years. But unless, the, yeah, I mean, the, the only place where I haven't seen these things happen is where the product, where the systems of engagement is also uh, built on top of the systems of records or in other words, it's one and the same. The product yeah. is actually, yeah, yeah. If product is built on top of Salesforce, uh, Salesforce platform, then yeah, they, then it gets all the attention it needs. Then it has a proper team around it. So yeah, that's kind of my uh, my view on the whole current state of CI/CD. The Salesforce DX is definitely a game changer. It is going to change the way teams are going to work when they make changes to Salesforce platform. And hopefully it'll encourage more uh, admins and business uh, citizen developers rather to use that same process that developers do. And everything flows through one pipeline. So we don't, you know, we don't have this common problem of half of them deploying through uh, anti-migration tool or DX and half of them deploying through chain sets or even <laughs> manually. I'll just do it in production. There you go, sorted. <laughs> exactly. You know, let the users test this. Yeah. <laughs> so if I wanted to learn more about DX, where should I go? Trailhead. Of course. Check out Trailhead if you're interested in learning more about DX. Uh, it's still evolving and uh, it's going to it's going to play a big part uh, if especially if you're a developer uh, you have to know about uh, dx because that's how you'll be building stuff D uh, salesforce dx unlock packages and all that um, if you're if you're using visual studio code then i would recommend that you follow the product manager who's working on these developer tools uh, his name is nathan totten it's at n totten uh, he's great very interactive if you ask him a question you can even submit bug requests to him on Twitter and he'll respond. Uh, great guy. So yeah, and Wade and Wade Wagner. He's also great on Twitter and responding to uh, Salesforce DX uh, and all Visual Studio questions. Right. Brilliant. Cool. So Francis, is, uh, what's happening? What, what else are you involved in, Francis? I've heard. What else am I involved in? I'm, I'm actually at the moment trying to balance the books for the next London's Calling. Ooh, of course. Da, 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 da. Which is going to be a monster. Oh, wow. So exciting. So, yeah, uh, so what, quite, can, you, quite, can you tell me the date for the next London's Calling? The next, well, um, I, I'm, I'm sure that the other co-organizer said I'm not allowed to talk about anything <laughs> but, to do with London's but Calling. Francis, but it's, it's your it's, duty as a co-host of this podcast for our, oh, it's your duty it? you know, towards our listeners. Too. They, they need to know. 
So, you know, you can just, okay. you know, what's the date? Okay. Okay. As long as everybody promises not to tell anybody else. Of course. Then I'll let you know. Of course. Yeah? Of course. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. I can vouch so, for, for our listeners. Yes. Uh, okay. So it's, as long as you promise not to tell anyone, mm -hmm. it's basically on the 20th of March. Oh. And it's, at, and it's also at the brewery, which is amazing new venue. Oh, that's great. Wow. Exciting. Yeah. So Exciting. Uh, I, I mean, you know, London Scalling is, is a great, great event. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, I think uh, I've said this publicly as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I enjoy the talks there. The quality of talks is great. And have, you have you spoken at London Scalling before? I think so. Twice or three times. Oh, really? Ah, yeah. brilliant. I have. I haven't. Okay, we will, we will be opening um, talk submissions soon. We do have a sponsor's uh, interest thing set up. So if you are a sponsor and want to sponsor the event, it's the largest event in Europe or pretty much outside the US. So Good stuff. And if people want to follow the latest updates, uh, what is the Twitter account that they should follow? at LDNS call, so London's call. Um, and I'll put a message in the uh, show notes as well, but L-D-N-S-C-A-L-L, -L, uh, or just londonscalling.net. And uh, can we expect Mark this year? Oh, absolutely. We've got the security there. Mark Benioff, of course, will be there. Uh, <laughs> safe harbor no <laughs> i don't think we'd cope with the security and the uh yeah oh dear fair but enough yeah fair so we, enough. we usually have a really awesome keynote speaker that's outside of the salesforce community um so we'll probably be getting something similar again next year as well so yeah i think that's kind of one of my uh favorite parts where you your keynote speakers uh have nothing to do with salesforce and you know, it's, uh, I find it interesting uh, because the last year's speaker, I forgot her name. Uh, she talked about uh, how distracted we are all the time. London Scalling also gave away the book she authored. Yes, we gave and, the book to everybody. Uh, that, yeah. Do you remember the name of the book? Yes, her book's called Homo Distractus, and that's what we kind of gave out to everybody at London Scalling. Fight your choices and identity in the digital age. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that book was very useful for me uh, because then I realized how distracted I was uh, between the multitudes of devices I had. And I decided, because Absolutely, of that book, yeah. I decided not to get an Apple Watch because I don't want more notifications in my life. I would also uh, have a, another book recommendation related to that, and we can possibly end the podcast on it. So I recently read a book called Indistractable. Uh, it's a book written yeah. by this guy, Nir Eyal, and it's also a great book and quite relevant for our age where we are constantly distracted by social media and our devices. So I'll highly recommend that book it's called Indistractable. So, so yeah. And it's on Audible as well, that looks of things. So yeah, it is. That's where I listened. Um, I, I listened to the audio version of it on uh, Audible. Awesome. Well, then that's it then, the end of another podcast. So yes. hopefully I will see everybody at London's Calling next year. <laughs> yes, but hopefully we'll do more podcasts between now and then. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> but, we'll be giving more information on what's going on. Cool. Oh, are you going to Dreamforce? I am not going to Dreamforce this year. Oh. No. How about you? I am going. I am going to Dreamforce. I'm getting up doing a talk on architecture diagrams. Oh, nice. Cool. So yes. Should oh. we good? Should we good? Is it recorded? Yes, it will be. It will yeah, be. Yeah, it will be recorded. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I will watch you on YouTube, Francis. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, cool. That'll be one person that's going to see it then. All right. <laughs> Thanks all. Thanks cool. for listening. Bye-bye. See ya, bye. Bye.